Good evening, everybody. Good evening. It is 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where my Bible is opened up. And I will invite you to be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 11 in your Bible as well. Let's take advantage of the opportunity that is before us to engage with the Lord. We can do that right now by opening up the Bible and by looking at the things that are contained within His Word. Let's study together for these next few moments. It is great to see everybody tonight. I trust that you've had a good afternoon. It's been a nice afternoon, even with the rain. I've been sitting in the office uh, this afternoon, and I've enjoyed just hearing the rain kind of trickle down. I'm thankful for the rain. I'm hoping maybe to get into the creek sometime this week. I haven't had a chance to do that in a while, but the Lord knows exactly what the earth needs, and we're thankful for that, and we praise Him for that. And I really can't think of many of the things I'd rather be doing than to close out this Lord's Day with you worshiping God together. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, this was part of our Bible reading schedule just this past week as we've been working our way this year through the New Testament. Don't know how you're doing with that, but I'm keeping up with it so far, doing so good so far. And we've been reading for the last couple of weeks in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. I've got to tell you, there's been some things that stood out to me about this letter. And part of it is right here in chapter 11. Read with me beginning in verse 17. In 1 Corinthians 11 and in verse 17, Paul says, But in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. And when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you are eating. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry and another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No. No, I will not. Let me invite everybody tonight to uh, take a field trip with me. Are you interested in that? How about we take a field trip over to the cinemas? Let's go over to Somerset Cinemas 8 and let's all go, let's all go watch a movie. What do you say about that? Well, that sounds like a great idea, but of course there's going to be a problem. We've got to decide what movie we're going to watch. And with this many people in the room trying to decide, get a consensus on what movie we're going to watch, that might prove to be a little bit difficult. Got all kinds of different tastes and uh, preferences in here. I would imagine we got some folks in here who, who would like to go watch a good comedy. Others of you would maybe like to go watch a, a horror movie, a scary movie. My wife likes those kinds of movies. Maybe our kiddos, they'd like to go see an animated movie or maybe a, one of those Marvel superhero movies. I know there's not a few of you here who would like to go watch one of those sappy romantic movies. <laughs> David Hatfield, I know you're back there, you can hear me. <laughs> There's all kinds of different varieties and genres of movie, but i got to tell you, for me, what I really like is I like dramas. I do. I like all kinds of dramas. I like nice family dramas. I like a good legal drama, a good crime drama. There's even been several good sports dramas throughout the years. I think dramas tend to, to engage us, engage people on a, on a deeper level maybe than any other kinds of movies. And maybe that would probably explain why the dramas are the ones that win all the awards every year and they receive the most critical praise. It is interesting though that we subject ourselves to the big emotional roller coaster that dramatic movies tend to put us through. 
In fact, I got this very basic and generic definition of what drama is. Drama is an exciting or emotional or an unexpected series of events. And I think that's a pretty good general description of what happens in dramas, but can I maybe break that out into some more specific kinds of things of what makes for a good drama? First and foremost, there's got to be, you got to start with a problem. And I'm really, I'm, the font on this is not, I'm having a lot of drama with the font this evening on the screen. That's way smaller than I want it to be, but we'll go ahead with it. You gotta start with some, some conflict, some trouble in this story. Need to have some of that. If you don't, then it's not really gonna be all that dramatic. And so since there's gonna be this drama and this trouble and this conflict, well what that means is, is that means there's probably, there's probably gonna be some good guys, and there's probably gonna be some bad guys. You know, if everybody's a good guy, well, well, then there's really no basis for much of a drama. You need a protagonist, that's the hero, that's the good guy, but you also need an antagonist, that's the villain, that's the bad guy. And maybe that's a person, maybe it's the government, maybe it's a disease, but somebody or something has to be causing all of the trouble, which means, means there's going to be some kind of a, a middle act in the story where the characters feel and experience some hopelessness and some desperation and some helplessness. And they're not really sure how how they got into this mess and how they're going to get out of this mess. Which is why you really can't take your eyes off the screen because you're trying to figure all of that out. And so as a result, there's usually going to be some some misdirection, going to be some intrigue. You think you've got it figured out. I think the story's going to go this way. I think I've got it figured out, but the director's actually taking you in a completely different direction And you're putting the pieces together slowly but surely. You're starting to figure things out. And if you stick with it long enough, yes, at the end, somehow and in some way, there's going to be this amazing and incredible resolution at the conclusion of that 90 minutes or so. And that gives us just a lifted feeling. And we love that. And we are kind of upset that the movie is over now. And we want to just watch even more drama. And so... Put all those pieces together. I'll just be the first to say it. I love drama in movies. But i got to tell you this. I hate drama in real life. I do pretty much everything about what I just described there about dramas. I loathe that in my real life. I mean, come on. Just look at the definition. Do you want that? Do you like drama in your life? Somebody says, well, yeah, you know, I I do kind of like a little bit of excitement in my life. You know, and even some emotion every now and then. That can be a pretty good thing. Okay, but what if your life was just one elongated series of highs and lows and twists and turns, and you have no idea of what's going to come next? If that is your life, that is not any fun at all. Who likes conflict and trouble? Who likes having an antagonist, a bad guy, somebody that's just a thorn in your side, pervading your real life? Who likes feeling hopeless and desperate? Who likes misdirection and not really knowing where you're going? I don't like, I don't like that and I don't want any of that in my life. Somebody says, well Josh, even if you did go through all of that, well at least you get, at least you get that incredible resolution at the end, right? Uh, pfft, says who? Who says you get that incredible resolution at the end in real life? The reason it's incredible in the movies is because oftentimes it's not very credible. 
That's not the way that it happens in our real day-to-day lives. Life doesn't always work out to where it all ties up neatly with a beautiful bow on top at the conclusion of 90 minutes. It's just not the way life is. And so I'll say again, I do not like drama in real life. So let's add that up. Drama in movies, yeah, it's pretty good. Drama in real life, that's bad. Let me add a third prong to that. Drama in the church, well, that's just downright dangerous. That is a recipe for disaster. When those kinds of elements are at the top of that list, when those things find their way into the family of God, that is a combustible situation. Because the church cannot operate and grow and thrive when it's under some kind of unexpected, twists and turns, up and down, unpredictable, good guys and bad guys sort of way. That is not why Jesus died. And that is not what brings us together. And I will tell you as well, that is not God's will for His people. And that's exactly why I began with that reading this evening in 1 Corinthians, the 11th chapter. Paul writes this letter to a church that was just brimming with drama. If you're up to date with the reading, then you know this to be true. There is division in this church. There are brethren who are taking each other to court, filing lawsuits against one another in this church. There are members who are publicly living in sexual immorality in this church. There's all kinds of wackiness going on with spiritual gifts in this church. And here in chapter 11, Paul points out that there is even abuses of the Lord's Supper going on. And what is Paul's verdict on that? Paul says, I do not commend you. This is not good. Paul says it would almost be better if you didn't come together. Corinth is exhibit A for a drama-filled congregation. Which is why, after reading 1 Corinthians for these past couple of weeks, I think I am more determined now, more than ever, that I want to be a part of a drama-free congregation. Isn't that a wonderful idea? Maybe that sounds like a very utopian kind of idea, but I believe that that is an idea that we should be shooting for. Because again, who wants problems? Who wants conflicts in the body of Christ? Who wants to look at their brother or their sister in Christ and perceive them as an antagonist, as a villain, as a bad guy? Who wants to feel hopeless and directionless in what we are trying to do as a group of God's people? None of us wants that. Those are the elements that are so common in the world. We expect that out there. That has no place in here. And yet we know, not just from reading the letter to the Corinthians, but we also know from churches that we have been associated with in our lives personally, we know that that it is entirely possible for a congregation to be just so infected with drama that it reaches a point where we just absolutely dread even going to church at all. Well, this evening what I'm asking is I'm asking for you to join me in taking the necessary steps in order to ensure that Lakeside is a drama-free congregation. 
I realize, and somebody would probably point this out to me at the conclusion of the lesson, so I'm going to go ahead and say it now. I realize that a certain amount of drama is just going to be inevitable. Because there's no such thing as a perfect church. But you know what? I do believe that we can prevent unnecessary drama. And I would say as well that we can certainly avoid being the kind of church that we read about here in Corinth. But I will also tell you that that is only going to happen. That ideal is only going to happen if you and I on an individual level, if we are willing to take a long, hard look in the mirror, and that's right here, to look in the mirror and then each one of us do some difficult and hard things in order to make that a reality. You want that? Are you ready to do that? Let me share with you, first of all, what I believe are the three most common causes of drama within a congregation. And it is my opinion that most drama in churches is not the result of sin. Sometimes it is, but most of the times it is not. Now, that's very different from how things work in the world. In the world, when we have conflict and drama, what usually is the source? It usually is sin. You know, having all kinds of conflict and drama at work. Well, why are you having that at work? Well, because my co-worker's a sinner. And they keep doing sinful things. They use foul language and all kinds of other sinful stuff. Or I'm having drama and conflict within my physical family. Why are you having that drama? Well, because my uncle's living in adultery. He's living in sin. That's the source of the drama. That is what accounts for much of the drama out there. But that's not usually what accounts and is at the heart of drama in here. Usually, drama within the church is the result of things like personalities and preferences and sometimes just plain old pettiness. And those things can certainly lead to sin, but we need to have enough self-awareness about our own lives that we are able to cut those things off at the knees before it escalates into full-blown drama and division and all the things that go along with that. And so you might be asking then, okay, what kind of things are you talking about, Josh? Well, I want to say this first of all, that whenever a church finds itself in that roller coaster of drama, first of all, that's probably due to there being some overly defensive people within that congregation. You don't know anybody like that, do you? You ever know anybody who's just overly defensive? I'm stressing the word overly, and in fact I'll stress the word overly on all three of these points, because to a certain degree, defensiveness defensiveness is actually a good thing. Defensiveness, defensiveness is actually a needful thing. The Bible, for example, says in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15 that we should always be ready to do what? We should always be ready to make a defense. To make a defense, to defend our faith. We should be willing and ready as well to give a defense of the gospel as Paul talked about in Philippians 1.16. We should defend our families if you're a parent or a husband. We should defend our influence and our reputation from being sullied and messed with. Being defensive, that can be good. But when we start talking about overly defensive people, yeah, that's an entirely different ballgame. Because overly defensive people are the people who tend to take everything personally. Everything that's said that they don't like or specifically agree with, every critique that is maybe offered and sent their way, 
Every question that is asked in their direction, that they think in some way is kind of a passive-aggressive jab at them, everything that is out of sorts, they see that as being a personal attack on them. They get their feelings hurt just super-duper easy and super-duper fast, even when there was no ill intention at all. They take everything personally. You know, an overly defensive person can be standing over here. In fact, I'll just use myself as an illustration. I'm going to be the overly defensive person. And services are over and everybody's standing around talking. And I'm standing here and I'm talking to a couple of people. And I, all of a sudden, I hear from all the way over there in the back corner, there's a group of people talking back there, and I hear somebody say, I didn't like what Josh did. And what do I immediately do? I immediately look in that direction and I assume they're talking about me. That's the number one. I'm thinking they're talking about me. Number two, they're probably talking about something that I did, I don't know, six weeks ago. Thirdly, they haven't let it go, whatever I did six weeks ago. Fourthly, they're gossiping about me instead of talking about it to my face. And then fifthly, I'm wondering what in the world have I done to cause them to bring this back up again? Now, what's my problem there? What's my problem in acting in that way? Well, number one, I don't know that they're talking about me. Maybe they were talking about Josh Harris. Maybe they're talking about Josh Gwynn. Maybe they weren't even talking about somebody named Josh. Maybe they said Joyce and I just misheard it. Maybe they're talking about a guy named Josh who isn't even a part of this congregation. You see, I don't know who they're talking about. I don't even know what they're talking about. All I heard was a fragment of a sentence that really didn't seem to jive with what I would prefer to hear. And in fact, maybe I missed the remainder of that conversation. Maybe the rest of the conversation went, well, I don't like what Josh did. But later I thought about it and I did like it. Well, I didn't hear that. I didn't hear any of that stuff. I had very selective hearing. What have I done? I have taken personally something that maybe didn't even have anything to do with me. And why? Because I'm being overly defensive. You know, drama in the Lord's church, it often occurs whenever I'm the kind of person who thinks that every flying object that's coming in the room, that it's an arrow of war. And any time I see an arrow of war, I just assume that that arrow is meant directly for me. Somebody's trying to shoot me. Well, I've got some assurances for you this evening. If you are Mr. or Mrs. Overly Defenses, I have an assurance for you. We're not out to get you. I don't think there's anybody here that is out to get you. What is this? This is a family. This is a support system, a supportive family of believers. Now, do we critique each other from time to time? Yeah, yeah, we do do that. Don't be defensive about it. Do we maybe ask each other questions from time to time? Hey, Mitchell, what in the world were you talking about this morning in Bible class, talking about Romans 1? What exactly did you mean there? Uh, Do we do that from time to time? Sure we do that. Now, is Mitchell supposed to take that personally? I'll get all defensive. Hey, what are you trying to do? Trying to attack me? Did you not pay attention? Did you not hear the point that I was making? Why are you trying to make life so hard for me? Oh, just going to Mitchell and just asking a question. Need some clarification on that. Overly defensive people really cause drama, I think, in two specific ways. Either A, they get upset over things that were never meant to be taken personally. In that sense, they're almost like evolutionists. They are making something out of nothing. That's what they're doing. 
Or B, the second thing, they are getting upset over a small thing and they make that small thing into a big thing. And yeah, I'll be the first to confess. Sometimes we as God's people, we don't always do the right thing. And we don't always say the right thing. That happens. When you have a group of 125 people sitting in a room, there's a pretty good chance somebody's going to say something that isn't exactly right. And if you do what I do, if you're the guy that gets up here every Sunday, and you say as many words as I do over the course of a Sunday, yeah, there's probably going to be a word or two throughout there that probably didn't come out the way that it should have. That happens. But the overly defensive person, they sees that as being a, it's a huge deal. Instead of keeping it a small deal. And what I'm saying to you tonight is I'm saying to you, don't be that person. Let that go. Learn to let stuff like that just go. In Proverbs 19 and in verse 11, the wise man says there, it is one's glory to overlook an offense. You know, it is a mark of your spiritual maturity whenever you're able to say, you know what, that's just not that big of a deal. You know, it kind of bothered me initially, but no, that's just not that big of a deal. And I refuse to make a mountain out of a little tiny molehill. I'm going to let that go. I'll confess to you, I actually got a little overly defensive this morning with Brother Terry. He was asking me about an article that I had wrote in the bulletin, and I just immediately went into that defensive posture. But you know what? I thought about it after services. I went to him and I, I said, I'm sorry. I shouldn't have acted that way. That shouldn't have been. I shouldn't have taken that tone with you about that. There was no need for me to create drama. And it wasn't even big drama. It was little drama. There's no need for me to create drama of any size about something of that nature. Terry's my brother. And he loves me and I love him. And we're trying to help each other to go to heaven. So why in the world should I assume the worst about him instead of simply assuming the best? Overly defensive people. They often are the first source of drama within a congregation. Just like this second category of people. And that is overly aggressive personalities. You may know somebody like that. Somebody with an overly aggressive personality. See some people smirking. Those of you that are members here at Lakeside, what you are all thinking to yourself right now is, yeah, I know somebody like that. And he's standing up in front of us and he's the one doing the preaching. And you know what? I recognize that. I am preaching at myself right here. Now, once again, I want to say that an aggressive personality, that can be good to a degree. You know, we need people who are willing to kind of jump out there and get things going. People who are going to say what needs to be said. People who are going to get things moving, get the ball rolling. I think often about the Apostle Peter. Apostle Peter was a guy that we would certainly describe as aggressive, right? But you know what? Peter also had some shades of over-aggression. Peter is the guy who jumped out of the boat without really even thinking about whether he knew what he was doing or not. Peter is the guy who whipped out that sword and cut a guy's ear off in defense of Jesus. Peter is the guy who often was telling Jesus, now Jesus, no, 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 that can't be. Jesus, you're not going to do this. Peter jumps to those conclusions after, I don't know, thinking about it for like five seconds after the Lord gets done talking. Peter is that aggressive guy. And overly aggressive people, they just kind of have a way of getting out ahead of themselves. They do that without thinking things through. 
And if you find that that describes you, then what I'm saying to you and what I'm saying to me is I'm saying we need to slow down. We don't have to be the first person who acts on everything that we see needs to be done. You don't have to be the person who leads the charge all the time. You don't have to be the guy who goes around being the fixer for everybody else's problems. And you sure don't need to do those things right now with some kind of half-thought, some kind of not even fully thought-out comment or explanation that shows very little wisdom and very little understanding. You know, there's a big difference between being a go-getter, and oftentimes that's that's how I rationalize my mind. Man, I'm just being a go-getter. There's a difference between being a go-getter and being an in-your-face obnoxious jerk. And I'll just ask right now that if I have ever created drama because I was the latter instead of the former, then I would ask for your forgiveness. Proverbs chapter 15 and in verse 18 says, and I'm quoting for this from the, the uh, kind of one of those modern translations, Proverbs 15, 18 says that a hothead stirs up strife, but he who is patient calms things down. In the vernacular of this sermon, overly aggressive guy creates drama, but the patient guy helps to quench drama. Church needs people who are patient. The church needs people who can help to quench those flames of drama, not stir them up even more. And then thirdly in this connection, and I am pretty certain that this may touch a nerve for some of you, but sometimes drama can be attributed to overly protective parents. That has been my observation in all of my years that I have been uh, apart and been around uh, the Lord's church And again, I am going to emphasize the overly part of that statement because there is no doubt that God has charged moms and dads with the task of protecting our kids. We have the duty to protect them from from sin, to protect them from the ways of the world, to protect them from, from physical harm and physical danger. That's important. And in that sense, that makes being protective a very good thing. In fact... Sometimes what you have, sometimes you have in a congregation, you have parents who are under-protected. They need to be maybe a little bit more involved in what's going on with their kids. Because their kids are just running around uncontrollably. And their kids are running around the parking lot and sitting on the bumpers of people's vehicles while they're pulling out. And it's making all the rest of us nervous. These are the kinds of parents who have told themselves and convinced themselves that eh, if I lose one, we'll just, we'll just make some more. It's okay. But as a result, they're creating drama for everybody else, even if they don't recognize and feel that drama. And so certainly there is some prudence in being protective to a degree. Let me tell you where the problem comes. The problem comes whenever mom or dad is trying to police and micromanage everything and everybody around their kids. The problem comes when mom or dad, they get immediately defensive and immediately aggressive whenever somebody comes to them and points out, hey, your kid was doing wrong. Hey, your kid's messed up. These are the ones who create problems because they are more quick and more apt to believe the word of a six-year-old than they are the word of a 60-year-old. And while I realize I say this as a parent, 
I realize that it is very natural for us to be protective of our own flesh and blood. What can start in our minds as a very noble cause can actually end up creating drama and conflict within the body of Christ. Several years ago, I was doing some preaching for a congregation. I would go there once a month, sometimes twice a month. And because I was going there so frequently, I got to know the folks pretty well. Got to have a pretty good working knowledge of the things that were going on in that congregation, the work that they were doing, and even even some of the troubles that they were having. And there was an issue that came up with a couple of families about a couple of their kids. And I don't remember exactly what the drama was all about. I'm wanting to say it was something to do with Bible classes, had something to do with either the class material itself, or maybe about how the age groups were divided for the Bible classes, something like that, but it ended up creating some real drama there. And I remember coming back the next month, and I had been told that, oh, yeah, we've, we've worked everything out, everything's okay, everything's fine, but when I came back that following month, I noticed something very different just when I stood up to preach. I noticed that these two families who used to sit together on this side of the building, now this family was over here, And this other family was over here. And I realized that that seems like a very small thing. But what I came to learn was that whenever other issues and problems come up within the congregation, those two families were, can you guess it? They were always on opposite sides of those particular issues. And so what had happened was they had papered over the problem, but there was clearly some lingering wounds and scars. Unfortunately, I found out a couple years later that that church ended up dividing. They ended up splitting. Now, I don't want to suggest that that split was the direct result of these couple of overprotective sets of parents. But I will say this, that I believe that the friction that was caused by those parents, it certainly was part of the equation. It certainly contributed to the problems that were bubbling under the surface there. And so to my fellow parents, I guess what I would simply say here is this. You need to recognize that you could be wrong. I could be wrong about my kids. When your kids come to you and they tell you a different story, your kids could be wrong. And maybe just maybe what the other people are trying to say, they may actually be right. And I think that if we just start with that recognition and that assumption then maybe we will be a little bit more inclined to give the benefit of the doubt to a mature Christian as opposed to an immature child. Now, having said those three things, I realize there are other things that could be added to that list, but I do think that those three categories, they cover an awful lot of ground. What I need to ask everybody in this room to do right now, and this will be painful, is I need you to stare at that list. And I need you to think long and hard about where you are. Look at that list and grade yourself. Which one, or maybe which ones, are you? I know that the second one, that's my big one. And I'm working on that. What about you? Is there something on that list that, mm, man, that just that stings a little bit? And is there something you need to be working on to improve in that area? As you're thinking about that in your mind, I need you to find Romans chapter 12 in your Bible. Look in Romans chapter 12. Because no matter what your grade might be, and you might be thinking to yourself right now, Oh, hat trick! I'm all three! I win! No. 
But wherever you are, I want you to simply understand that our God built one church. And He built that one church to be together. And He has one rule that ought to govern every single person in that church. I read about that in Romans chapter 12 and in verse 18, where Paul says there, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. So far as it depends on you. Somebody right now is going to be quick to say, well, just wait a minute, Josh, you don't know. Stop. Stop right there. Well, Josh, but I try to stop. Stop right there. Well, you don't know what that other person... Stop! Just stop. Stop being defensive. Stop being aggressive. Stop being protective. So far as you have the power to influence the situation, so far as you are still a part of this local church, you do everything that you can to be at peace with your brethren. And by the way, you realize that that verse... That verse isn't even talking about Christians. You realize that? It's talking about you being at peace with worldly people, ungodly people, the very people who are adversarial to people like us. Now here's my question. If Paul expects us to do everything that we can to be at peace with them, how much more so does he expect and the Lord expect us to be at peace with one another? I don't know about the rest of you, but this place, and I'm not talking necessarily about the physical building, but when we come together in this place, this is where I come to get away from drama. Because this place, this body, this is to be a haven for peace. And so the question is, how do we accomplish that? How do we remedy drama if it exists? Or how do we prevent drama from infiltrating our fellowship? Can I quickly share with you three ideas? Three very, I'm going to call them three uncommon cures for drama in a congregation. And the reason that I'm calling these things uncommon is because most people don't do these things. Or most people just don't want to do these things. These are the kinds of things that require effort. These are things that are hard and difficult. But I believe they are exactly what a congregation, I believe they're exactly what we as a congregation need in order to grow and to thrive and to excel and to be at peace. And the very first of those is found in Ephesians chapter 5. Come quickly with me to Ephesians 5. Look in verses 15 and 16. In Ephesians 5, and in verses 15 and 16, Paul writes there, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15, he says, Look carefully then how you walk, Not as unwise, but as wise. Making the best use of the time because the days are evil. The number one cure for ending drama, and I'm going to use what is really kind of one of my favorite King James-isms from this verse, and that is we need to walk circumspectly. That's how it's rendered in verse 15 if you're reading from a King James. Do you know what that means, that word circumspectly? Well, if you're reading from an ESV or one of the other modern translations, it's spelled out for you. It means we're going to be careful. It means we're going to look around and we're going to assess the situation. 
You know, drama does not go away by just ignoring it. Or we just sit and we just kind of wish that it goes away. No, at some point, drama and conflict, it has to be confronted. We're going to have to walk through that. So the question is, how do we walk? Paul says we walk circumspectly. If you're walking across the room, then you need to you need to survey the room. You know, where are the holes in the floor? Are there traps that I need to be mindful of and need to be watching for? you got to get a feel of the room before you proceed. Well, guess what overly aggressive guy does? Guess what I have done? I'm the guy who says, ain't nobody got time for that. I ain't got time to do that. I need to go. I need to hurry up and go. And as a result of my desire to just hurry up and get in there, what happens? I make a mess of things. I bumble across the room. I make matters worse. I say stupid things. What we need to do, we need to hit the pause button. And we need to just take a look around. We need to evaluate. We need to take in all of the information before we move forward to address that problem. In many ways, it's like a clock. I like this illustration. I saw a guy who was talking about the idea of a clock. Think about you're holding a clock in front of you. And think about where all of the various numbers on a clock, where they're all pointing. At the 6 o'clock position, well, that's me. That's where I need to start. I need to think about what's going on with me. You know, am I wrong here in what's happened? You know, what am I feeling here and why am I feeling this? Why am I feeling this conflict and this trouble? Then the second place I need to look is I need to look at the 12 o'clock position. That's, that's them. That's the other person. Why did they do this? What were they maybe thinking? Can I put myself in their shoes? What were their thoughts? Do you think maybe they were justified in what they did? Then the next thing I want to do is I want to look at the 9 o'clock and the three o'clock positions, that would be, that would be the perspective of others. You know, what does this situation look like to them? As kind of an outsider looking in, do they maybe see things from a different vantage point? Do they maybe see things a little bit more clearly than I see them? And after I've looked in all those positions, I want to come back to the six o'clock. That's me. How do I feel about it now after seeing all of that and taking all of that in? I like that a lot. You try that. Six. Well, hold on. Six, twelve, nine and three, back to the six. What we need to remember is we need to remember that drama is often driven by impulsiveness. And peace, on the other hand, it is built on patience and it is built on perspective, which is why we need to walk circumspectly. Secondly, I will suggest to you that we then need to act judiciously. Alright, so I've done step number one. I've thought about this problem, this conflict from every possible angle, and I have concluded that yes, there is a problem. This is not just in my mind. This is a real problem. This brother or this sister, they have done something against me, or maybe at the very least, they have brought an undesirable emotion into my life. What's the next thing I need to do? Should I call my friends and talk to them and gossip about that? Should I make some kind of a passive-aggressive insult about them in the presence of others? Should I maybe just ignore that person for the next six months? Yeah, like that's going to accomplish anything good. How about instead we do Galatians 6? In Galatians 6 and in verse 1, in Galatians 6 and in verse 1, Paul says, Brothers... 
If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Paul says that you do need to take some action. But what you do, it needs to be done in a certain kind of way. First of all, he says it needs to be done with spiritual motives. Secondly, he says that it needs to be done with a gentle and meek spirit. Thirdly, he says it needs to be done with the desire and with the goal of restoring, not winning an argument, but restoring that broken and fractured relationship. And then fourthly, he says, we're going to do that very cautiously. That is, we're going to do that with the kind of guarded optimism that says, I believe that this can be repaired, but I'm going to keep a watch on myself lest I fall into that same hole. What Paul describes in Galatians 6 is taking action, but doing so with wisdom, with good judgment. That's what judiciously means. It means to act in good judgment. That is the kind of approach that all of us need to be cultivating in our minds in order to extinguish any flames of drama. And then finally this evening, probably most importantly of all, and that is drama will only disappear if we will pursue forgiveness. Now, somebody sees that and they're probably thinking, well, you just wait a minute, Josh. I'm not the one who needs forgiveness here, okay? I did the first two steps. I did some surveying. I did some measuring here. I talked with some of my friends. And as we've talked all about that, I think we figured it out. We figured out that I'm the one who's right and they're the one that's in the wrong. And so what are you talking about that I need to be pursuing forgiveness with that person? I'll tell you why you need to pursue forgiveness. When Jesus Christ was dying on the cross of Calvary, And He had done nothing wrong. Instead, it was the crucifiers and the enemies. They are the ones who had done all of the wrong. Just before He died, Jesus spoke and He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I want you to listen to me very carefully. What Jesus was doing there was He was pursuing forgiveness. Not for himself. He didn't have anything to be forgiven of. He was pursuing forgiveness for everybody else. And what we need is we need that kind of heart. The kind of heart that says, I want forgiveness. I want reconciliation with my brother or my sister. It doesn't matter about I'm wrong or you're wrong or you did this or I did that. No, let's just get to the forgiveness part of this. That's what I'm interested in. I want to be right with you. I do. I want you, let me explain what that means. I want you to be able to say my name around your dinner table in a positive light. Hey, that Josh McKibben guy. Yeah, like that guy. Good guy. Appreciate what he's doing. I want that that to be the case. I want to be right with you. I want to forgive you and I want you to forgive me. But then most importantly, I want to be right with God. And I want you to be right with God. And I believe that if we will always act with that principle in mind, with the principle goal of being right with God and being right with one another, then I believe what will happen is, is the devil's going to have to pack up his stuff and he's going to have to go somewhere else. Because there'll be no room for him here. There'll be no room for his drama 
and his seeds of discord. In Matthew chapter 5, please. In Matthew 5, let me close with two verses in Matthew. In Matthew chapter 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks here about about being angry with your brother. Drop down in Matthew chapter 5. They're around verse 20, 21, 22. Then in verses 23 and 24, he says this. Matthew 5, 23. He says, So, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother... And then, then you come offer your gift. Can I just be honest with you? Whenever there is drama and friction within a congregation, I don't even want to worship. I don't. Just something about that just feels wrong. The idea of us coming into this same room, We're all putting our voices together singing those songs, but I know, I know that that brother over there, man, he just doesn't like me very much. He's angry at me. Or knowing that the guy six rows back from me, hmm, he's just got it out for me. The idea of us coming together and worshiping in that kind of setting, man, that just feels off. Something about that just doesn't feel right. And you want to know why it doesn't feel right? Because Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, I don't want you doing that. Number one, first, go and be reconciled to your brother or to your sister. In fact, just look across on the other page in Matthew chapter 6, as Jesus is giving the model prayer. Part of that prayer, verse 12, is He says, Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Isn't that where we are? Isn't that where all of us are? You know, how many issues within a congregation would disappear instantly if everybody just wanted God to treat them exactly the way that they are treating the other person? You know, I think we're just tripping over ourselves, or we would be tripping over ourselves to get to that other person because we want to forgive them so much when we realize what God has set up and what God wants for His people and for His church. Let me close with Philippians chapter 2. If you don't want to turn there, that's fine. Just listen. In Philippians chapter 2, familiar verses, beginning of verse 1, Paul says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. Verse 5 now. Have this mind among yourselves, which is also yours in Christ Jesus. That's what we need. We need to have the mind of Christ. The mind where we desire peace above all else. Peace with our fellow man, but more importantly, peace with our brothers and sisters in Christ as we strive to be at peace with the Lord. I do believe that God has a great plan.
for the lakeside congregation. It is built in His image, and it will lead to souls being saved if we will be single-minded, as Philippians chapter 2 talks about. I really could not be more excited about the future of this congregation. In just a couple of weeks, it will be the five-year anniversary that I've been here working with this congregation, and it's just neat as I've reflected back on the past five years as to the, the growth, and not just the numerical growth, but I have seen visible spiritual growth. We've seen people become Christians. We've seen people excel and grow in all kinds of different ways. The Lord does have great plans for us, and He has great desires for us. We need to be making sure that we're doing our part in this equation. To keep the drama that the devil would plant here, keep that out so that we can serve the Lord in sincerity and in truth. We can look forward to the day when we can enjoy the fellowship of all the saints of all time in heaven. Are you a part of the body of Christ? Talk so much this evening about kind of internal sorts of things. Looking at these kinds of thoughts from someone, from the perspective of someone who is a part of the body of Christ, but... I realize that we also have people in attendance tonight who are not a part of that body. You've never been baptized into Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. You've never committed yourself to the Lord and committed your life to Him in that way. We give you this opportunity. The Lord has granted you this opportunity. It is the invitation and it is your opportunity to accept it and to obey it right now. If we can help somebody to become a Christian, if we can help you, brother or sister, to serve the Lord in a better way, to be a better Christian And would you take advantage of this moment? Take advantage of the opportunity to serve the Lord and to do what's right. Do that right now while we stand and while we sing.